0: Today's scripture reading will be from Mark chapter 12, so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Mark 12, 18 through 27. I believe this is on page 848, or right around there in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you if you need a Bible. And as you're turning there, I invite you to stand with me as well for the reading of God's Word. Mark, chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. And last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And in verse 24, it says, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. We were built for relationships. All of us, whether introvert or extrovert or somewhere in between, have an innate desire to know and to love and to be loved by others. I see it in my children who long for their mother when she's away and fear fear disappointing us as parents in any way. I, I see it in teens who thirst for genuine connections with others their age, through clubs at school or on servers or on their phones. As young adults, you date and perhaps even slide into the DMs of someone else because you want a companion. For life. As married couples, we all want to be in harmony and to experience a deep intimacy with our spouse. As parents, we, we want the best for our children. We love them unconditionally, and I know grandparents just treasure the time they have with their grandchildren. And all of us look for a sense of community in the neighborhoods that we choose to settle in or the church that we decide to become members of. We're, we're built for relationships. So much of our emotional energy is spent thinking about and pursuing great relationships. But what hangs over all of our relationships is this dark cloud called death. And it threatens to rain down on us at any time. It infuses all of our experiences with a tint of gray. Death influences everything we enjoy, including our relationships. Death isn't just the end of biological life. It's not just a problem to be punted down the, the field of life until it comes charging again toward its final goal. It's a daily reality that reminds us that our pursuits in this world are often so fleeting. You know, I may not look it, but I'm probably in the prime of my life right now. <laughs> you know, I'm not, certainly not as fast or, or limber as I, I once was, but I have my health, I'm married to an excellent wife, I have three wonderful kids and I love being pastor here at Redeemer. It's helpful for me to slow down sometimes and just reflect on how good the Lord has been to pause and and to smile at at the joy that our children bring to our home, To, to hold Kelly and just be thankful for the woman that God has provided for me and to reflect upon all that the Lord has done at Redeemer over these years. But... Even I can't escape the fact that all these pleasurable moments right now will eventually morph into passing memories that fade as death nears. death presents us with a relational problem. It forces us to ask why we even bother with the relationships that we all desire on this earth. Living under the, the shadow of death can be hard, especially as we think, well, what will happen with the relationships that we've formed with the ones we love most? Yet when we consider the inevitability of death and the end of earthly relationships as we know them, we can begin to ask some of the questions that are so crucial to living well now. When, when we stop ignoring death, when we stop pushing it out of our minds we can begin to grapple with the question of how we are to live well while we're still alive in light of death how are we to think about our relationships are we resigned to having our hearts broken or to keeping everyone at a safe emotional distance from us how do we overcome the fear and and the unknown of losing the ones we love while Also, learning to enjoy the time that we have with them. These are some of the questions that arise out of our passage from Mark this morning. Jesus was in the middle of dealing with a series of challenges made against him by the religious leaders of Israel during the week of his death. These leaders were trying to trap him in something that he might say. They were trying to discredit him. They didn't want him to continue to have the influence that he had with the Jewish people because they knew that he didn't approve of what they thought or how they had been living. And in verses 18 through 27 of Mark 12, today we find the Sadducees questioning Jesus about the resurrection. Now, last week we looked at how the Pharisees and Herodians came up to him with a question about taxes to try to put Jesus in a political pickle. But with great wisdom, Jesus avoided their trap and revealed their need to not only honor their earthly authorities, but also their need to give ultimate allegiance to their heavenly authority. And the Sadducees quickly comprehended that the Pharisees and Herodians had failed in their attempt to trip Jesus up. So they brought him a question of their own. It was a question related to human relationships and the issue of the resurrection. And It's a question that forces us to consider the very nature and purpose of our relationships in light of impending death. And what Jesus reveals in his response is that resurrection gives us the hope of an eternal relationship with God that not only transcends our earthly relationships, but also infuses them with purpose— Because of the the resurrection hope that we have in Christ, our our human relationships have great meaning, not just for this life, but for the life to come. Because our relationships aren't meant simply to end at death or to continue indefinitely in some disembodied state. Our relationships now are meant to, to point us to the much better relationship we have with God. And and Jesus shows us here in in Mark why this isn't just wishful thinking. It, It is completely rational and sensible to not live our lives under the cloud of death. And it's not by pushing death out of the way like so many are tempted to do today. But rather it's by embracing and living our lives in light of the resurrection. Now let's examine how Jesus advocated for that this morning. And to do so, we need to first consider the question posed by the Sadducees. They thought that the whole concept of resurrection was silly. And I want you to notice that resurrection does seem silly when your reality is confined to this world. Resurrection seems silly when your reality is confined to this world. We are introduced to the Sadducees in verse 18. They were a religious group like the Pharisees, but instead of being a group of and for the common people, the Sadducees were associated with the priestly aristocracy of the day. Uh, There's a strong likelihood that their name is derived from the name Zadok, who was the high priest under King David and King Solomon. Zadok was a faithful high priest, and his name means righteous or justice in Hebrew. So this would have been a fitting name to call yourself if you were a Sadducee. And because of their priestly connections, they were typically wealthy and men of rank. Even though they were fewer in number than other Jewish groups at the time, they they made up a majority of the Sanhedrin, which again was the ruling council of the Jews at that time. So the Sadducees managed the levers of the Jewish political structures. Now, the Sadducees were also known for their doctrinal stances. and We know from some early church fathers that they held the Pentateuch or the Torah, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books. They held those books in high esteem. They considered those five books of Moses more authoritative than any of the other books in the Old Testament. And this led them to two very distinct views. First, they didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. And second, they didn't believe in the resurrection, which is what Mark explains to us in verse 18. These these weren't views necessarily held by the Pharisees or or many other Jews. They were unique to Sadducean theology. Uh, There are other things that could be said about the Sadducees, but those are the most salient points to help us understand our passage today. Because of their political power— They wanted to diminish Jesus' influence. And because of their conviction that resurrection was ridiculous, they decided to approach him with a question about it. Perhaps they had heard Jesus talk about being the resurrection and the life. Or maybe they just assumed that he too believed what many other Jews believed. Mark writes that they asked him a question saying, teacher. Now, they didn't necessarily call him that because they respected him. That was just a way to address Jesus according to his popular reputation with the crowds. They said, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So the Sadducees introduced their question by bringing up something that Moses wrote about in the law. And they bring up the topic of leveret marriage. L E V I R A T E. Leveret marriage. In Latin, lever means brother in law. So leveret marriage refers to marriage uh, of a widow whose husband had died without giving her children to her brother in law. Now we see uh, a couple of examples of this in the Old Testament. There's the, the bad example of Ur and Tamar and Onan in Genesis 38. Some of you might remember that. Ur was a wicked husband who was put to death by by God. And his brother Onan was instructed to raise up children with his widow Tamar. But Onan sinfully refused and it led to even worse sin in that family. It's a sad and and very twisted story. But there's also the good example of Ruth. Ruth was a childless widow who was taken in by her relative Boaz. He married her, and through him, she eventually became the great-grandmother of King David. So, levirate marriage was a real thing in the Old Testament. Now, the passage that the Sadducees referred to was from Deuteronomy 25. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6 for you. Okay, Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. It says there, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies... And has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. All right, this passage in Deuteronomy explains why this law was instituted in the first place. A lever at marriage was for the sake of provision, it was for the sake of protection, and it was for the sake of preservation. It was meant to provide widows with a husband in a time when government and social structures were lacking. It was meant for protection so that Jewish widows wouldn't feel forced to marry strangers or be tempted to intermarry with pagans. And it was meant to preserve the family name and inheritance— The the firstborn son of the new marriage would be regarded as the legal son of the deceased husband so that that man's name and inheritance would continue. So, given that this was a clear command from God through Moses to the people of Israel, the the Sadducees had some questions about how this kind of of God-sanctioned marriage would work if there really was such a thing as the resurrection. You see, the Sadducees believed in the Old Testament concept of sheol. That's another word to refer to the resting place of the dead. They seem to believe that when you died, you just went to the grave. You went to an indefinite holding cell, as it were, for the dead. And that's likely because there isn't really an explicit text about what happens after death, or even about judgment after death in the Torah, in the first five books of the Old Testament. So, to the Sadducees, resurrection was nonsensical. And to prove that, they posed a crazy scenario about resurrection and levirate marriage featuring seven brothers to Jesus. Now, some people think that they got this idea because there's a, there's a similar story in one of the apocryphal books named Tobit that deals with a woman who was married seven times and didn't have any kids. But there are, are several differences between the two accounts. The most important being that the Sagissarian scenario... Um, has seven marriages that were all to brothers from the same family. Because the Sadducees were trying to point out how the law, the law of Leveret marriage, brother-in-law marriage, the command for a brother to marry the childless widow of of his brother was inconsistent with the concept of resurrection. To them, it wasn't simply the idea of remarriage in the resurrection that was hard to comprehend, but... It was the idea that God would command for remarriage to happen in certain situations and then just leave his people in an impossible heavenly situation. And so they said in verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And in verse 23, we get their question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. The Sadducees likely thought they had stumped Jesus. The law said one thing, and it was incompatible with the idea of resurrection because it would create a polygamous situation, which was obviously not God's intent. From the beginning, God intended for one man and one woman To be joined together as one flesh in monogamous marriage. To them, the concept of resurrection would create a situation in which it would become impossible for this woman and for those brothers to be faithful to God's original intention for marriage. To them, the resurrection seemed silly because they had no vision for life after death. For them, death meant the grave, it meant the end of this life, and they, they couldn't see the potential for a heavenly reality that was better than the current one. So they assumed that marriage would just continue on in its present form in the resurrection, and it didn't make sense to them. They didn't believe the resurrection because their reality had been confined to this world. But Jesus didn't agree with their assessment at all. He responded in verse 24, and he said to them, is This is not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus straight up told them that they had deceived themselves. He said, you're wrong. And it was because they were ignorant of God's word, and they were ignorant of God's power. Jesus told them that they didn't know their Bibles, and they didn't know their God. And he proceeded to defend the resurrection. resurrection might seem silly when your reality is confined to this world, but in actuality it generates hope when your reality is informed by God and his word. Resurrection generates hope when your reality is informed by God and his word. That's what we see next in verses 25 to 27. And Jesus dealt first with the Sadducees' ignorance of God's power. They didn't understand that God has the ability to raise the dead and that resurrection life is more than just the unbroken continuity of what we experience now on earth. It's a different and more glorious existence. In verse 25, we see that God's power to raise the dead brings hope of a better life. Resurrection generates hope uh, when your reality is informed by the fact that God's power to raise the dead brings hope of a better life. God's power to raise the dead brings hope of a better life. Jesus said in verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Here, Jesus affirmed the, the, the truth of the resurrection, but he also clarified that though marriage is something God instituted for us in this world, he didn't intend for us to experience it in the same way in the world to come. That's because in heaven, when we're exalted, we will no longer need marriage as we did on earth. Uh, The Sadducees assumed that if there was a resurrection, families would just keep on living like they had before. Eternity would just be a forever extension of earth in that regard. It was something like the Mormon belief that our marriages and families will, will continue on into eternity. And you can see the allure of that kind of thinking if you are in a good marriage or you're part of a great family. But Jesus rejected that view of heavenly relationships because it doesn't take into account the real purpose of relationships today. Why has God given us relationships? God has given us relationships not so that we would try to form families and, and communities with us at the center of them and try to hold on to those relationships as long as we can, But he has given us relationships so that we might reflect the relational nature of our triune God. God created us in his image to reflect his glory. He created us as relational beings because he himself is the greatest relational being. And our relationships now are meant to point us to and allow us to experience in lesser form the beauty of the harmonious love that is present within the Father and the Son and the Spirit of God. That's why a vision of human marriage extending into eternity is lacking and inaccurate. In heaven, there there is no death. There is no need for procreation. In the resurrection, we become like angels. Now, Now, we don't become angels, but we become like them, and the fact that we no longer die and Perhaps also in the fact that we don't need to be married to each other. The the, the point is that in heaven, our lives take on a new dimension. And and God's power to resurrect us to new life explodes the, the, the limits of our imagination. Heaven will be different than what we have experienced on this earth. Paul writes about it in this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another of the moon, another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is, Im- is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power in heaven we won't need marriage not not just because there's no death and no need to procreate but because of the the intimacy and 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 because the intimacy and the the companionship that we enjoy in our human marriages will be transcended by the intimacy and companionship that we have with god in a sense christians will experience a greater kind of marriage All of God's people will be readied to Him in ultimate bliss. And we will experience the great joy of of life together as one happy family. Brothers and sisters in Christ forever. No no death to threaten us. No sin to separate us. Only Christ to unite us. Resurrection holds out to us the hope of a much better life. Now, I know some of you are sitting next to your spouse, the person you love most in this life. You're probably thinking, well, I still know my spouse in heaven. I love my husband. I love my wife. can't imagine not being married to him or her. I feel you. I love my wife. I want to spend eternity close to her, and I believe I will. There's no reason to believe that our earthly relationships are going to be erased in heaven. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he told them to, he expected to continue his relationship with them as part of his reward in heaven. He wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. We, we, we will still know and remember those whom we loved on earth. And I, I expect to know and to love Kelly dearly in heaven. And I'm happy for her because she won't have to deal with all my sinful quirks anymore. I, I hope to see my children there. I expect to see most of you there. I expect to remember you. But no matter how close we are right now or how close we're going to grow in the coming years... These relationships we have now will be no match for the relationship that we will have with God himself. The hope that we have because of God's power to resurrect us in glory is of a better life and of a better closeness. Now, some of you with astute minds out there may also be wondering if there's no marriage, will there be no sex in heaven? Logically, I think that's a definite possibility. Right? If sex is intended for marriage, as the Bible teaches, and there is no marriage, then it might not be needed anymore. It certainly won't be necessary for procreation, and I don't think it will be necessary for intimacy and pleasure. But I don't know for sure. What I do know is that God designed sex to be a good thing for us, and I believe he may continue to provide that for us, or he may give us something better. Think of it like macadamia nuts. Mac nuts have always been the premium nut in my mind. They're at the top of the nut chain. We don't have them that often as a family, but my kids enjoy them as well. And when I'm snacking on them and trying to hide them, hoard them, I often see a small hand get thrust in front of me, requesting some. Well, recently we went to Hawaii as a family and we bought some macadamia nuts to bring home, but this time we didn't just buy the plain mac nuts or the sea salt mac nuts. We bought some of the chocolate-covered ones. And now, having been introduced to these nuts, one child in particular in our home knows no better way to enjoy those nuts. Chocolate-covered mac nuts. Those are next level. And I think, in a very small way, that's the idea of heaven. Even the things that are at the top of our enjoyment list in this world right now, will be superseded in the world to come. Chocolate-covered glory. <laughs> and this hope, this hope of a better life and a, should give us a better perspective on this life. Even though human marriage won't exist in heaven, Marriage today is still good. It is meant to to point us and prepare us for our relationship with Christ, right? Ephesians 5.31, you know this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So continue to pursue great marriages, Husbands, continue to think about how you can lead your wives to to Christ and prepare your wife for the day when her faith will become sight. Wives, show show honor to your husbands as you would to Christ. Persist in fighting for that submissive heart so that your husband will will joyfully lead you and, and grow in his appreciation for the loving leadership of Jesus in his life. You get to prepare each other for the life to come in a relationship With God, that will be far sweeter than what you have right now. If you're in a hard marriage, or perhaps you're divorced, don't lose hope. Something better is coming. And though you may feel the the sting of failure, and you may feel the sting of sin right now, it won't always be that way. Don't lose sight of Christ in that day to come. And and if you're still single, or you're not even thinking about marriage right now, know that your responsibility is is to draw closer to Jesus, to know him, to love him, and to follow him so that you will not be drawn away from him and that you might experience the fullness of him in eternity. Jesus explained to the Sadducees that they were ignorant of God's power. For if they understood it, they would have known that God has the, the power to raise the dead. And that brings hope of a better life. And Jesus also told the Sadducees that they were ignorant of God's word. They were ignorant of God's power. They were ignorant of his word. And in verses 26 and 27, he showed them why. We see in these last two verses that resurrection is real because God's word promises it. And those promises secure our hope of a better life. Not only does God's power to raise the dead bring hope of a better life, but God's promises in his word secure our hope of a better life. God's promises in his word secure our hope of a better life. Now, the question that the Sadducees had cooked up probably wasn't a new recipe. It's not hard to imagine that this is something that they had argued with the Pharisees about over the years. For the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection, and they had good reason to. While the doctrine of resurrection is much clearer in the New Testament after Jesus rose from the dead, the concept and, and the hope of the resurrection was still present in the Old Testament. It's especially clear in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, when it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Isaiah 26, verse 19, also says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. There are also allusions to resurrection life in Job and and the Psalms and a reference to the raising up of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. But the Sadducees wouldn't have been convinced if the Pharisees brought up those passages because they would have demanded clear proof from the Torah. Now, their rejection of the prophets and the writings in the Old Testament was itself an indication that the Sadducees didn't know the Scriptures as they should have. But in his response, Jesus played according to their house rules. He showed them that they didn't even understand the law which they supposedly so revered. He went back to the Torah to provide, or to to prove, I should say, that the resurrection of the dead was something that even Moses wrote about. And so Jesus said in verse 26, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? This was from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. It's a passage that Pastor Stephen preached on not too long ago in his series on Exodus. It was when God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush and called him to be the one he would use to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. Egypt. Jesus went to a very familiar passage of the law. This was a passage in which God declared that that he had a covenantal relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the idea he was communicating was Though these patriarchs had died before the time of Moses, they were still alive spiritually. Our English translations help us understand this by supplying the verb am. God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He said, I am their God. But you should know that the, the verb am actually isn't in, in the original Hebrew of Exodus three six or or even the, the Greek of Mark twelve twenty six, It's an implied verb. But it's rightfully supplied, in our translations, because of the covenant, covenantal nature of God's relationship with these men. Okay, listen carefully here. God's faithfulness to his covenant. The fact that he said, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob implies that these patriarchs didn't remain dead. Let me say that again. God's faithfulness to his covenant with the patriarchs implies that they didn't remain dead. And that's because death would have released God from his obligations to fulfill his covenant. If if the patriarchs just died, then God wouldn't have any more covenantal obligation to them. You see, God was assuring Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, that he was the God who had protected the fathers of Israel. He was the God who had provided their deliverance, and so Moses could be confident that God would be his provider and protector as well. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. God is the protector, and he's the provider, and he's the deliverer of the living. If God had taken on the job of protecting Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from tribulation during their lives, but then had neglected to deliver them from the great trial of death, then his protection wouldn't mean much. So by referring to this passage in the law, Jesus was saying that God would never just promise to protect his people partially during this life and and leave the final say up to death. If the death of the patriarchs was the end of their existence, then God's covenantal promise and relationship with them wouldn't mean much. Resurrection is biblical, not only because it's discussed in parts of the Old Testament, but also because it's compatible and necessitated by God's covenant relationship with his people that's expressed over and over again in the Torah. God has promised in his word to protect and provide for and deliver his chosen people. And his commitment to his word will cause him to resurrect the dead. You see, the Pharisees had missed this critical link between God's covenant faithfulness and the resurrection. And it had led them to the wrong conclusions about life after death. And so Jesus told them, you are quite wrong. Without a robust understanding of the Bible, we are doomed to fall into religious error. This has been true in every age of history of God's people. In the time of Josiah, it was the rediscovery of God's word that led to change and and to the delaying of God's judgment upon Judah. In, In Jesus' day, it was a lack of true biblical understanding in the religious leadership of the Jews that led them to crucify him. The dark ages were marked by how the church kept the word of God from the majority of God's people. It, it wasn't until the translating and, and printing and reading of God's word during the Protestant Reformation that God purified and reinvigorated the church. And, and even today, it is churches that stand on the word of God that flourish and endure. It's families that make the Bible a priority where you sense godliness. It's individuals who read their Bibles that encourage us with their holiness. We cannot neglect the Bible or we will open ourselves up to dangerous errors. It needs to be read and studied and heard. It needs to be obeyed. We can't read it superficially because we think we know it's message already. We can't read it through the lens of modern sensibilities instead of humble faith. We can't read it to find faults with it, but we should read it to find out where our own faults are. If you settle for ignorance of God's word, you'll be wrong. You'll, you'll live this life at the wrong point of view. Maybe like the Sadducees, you'll allow your life to be confined to this world. But it's in God's word that we find the promise of resurrection, and the hope of a better life to come. God's word secures our hope of a better life. Jesus showed the Sadducees from God's law that, that resurrection isn't silly. Rather, it should be a source of great hope. And in less than a week, he would show them through his own life and experience. His resurrection from the dead would verify the covenantal promises of God and Jesus' very own words right here. Resurrection is rooted in God's power, it is secured by the promises of his word, and ultimately, It's won for us by Christ himself. Our earthly relationships are to be treasured. We're we're to cultivate them because God designed us as relational beings to reflect his image. But no matter how great our relationships can be, we can't fall for the narrative that they're the best thing that we can hope for. There is life beyond death. It's a resurrected life that provides us with the hope of something better. Resurrection provides us with the hope of something better. The the earthly relationships you have, great as they might be, will not compare to what's coming. You don't just have to take comfort in fading memories of good times or the uncertain possibility of a human relationship that might or might not make you feel happier. We have much more to look forward to as believers. We have a future with God himself for he's not a God of the dead but he is the God of the living. And so find your joy in him and use every relationship you have now as a way to point others to him and to prepare them for the day when they will be resurrected so that they might enjoy life with him instead of death, apart from him for eternity. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you and praise you that you are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you are our God as well. Thank you for the hope of resurrection that we have in Jesus. Help us not to be blinded by just what this world offers, but help us to have eyes to see beyond and to hope in a future with you a glorious future, better than than all that we can imagine now. And let that inform how we live now so that we might point others to you and reflect your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.